Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and we have quite a bit of time traveling ahead of us today. We'll start in the recent past with a quick retrospective about the last few Caliphs while highlighting some key themes. Then we'll return to our story and discuss the succession of the Ummah's latest Caliph, and begin to describe the sort of challenges he will face during his illustrious career. There is lots to talk about in episode 33, Hisham bin Abdul Malik. Histories about the Umayyad dynasty often try to frame their subject matter by repeating a quote we find in several of our primary sources, that there were three great Umayyad caliphs, Muawiyah, Abdul Malik, and Hisham. Each member of this trio redefined the caliphate during his long reign, and honestly you would get a pretty effective summary of Umayyad history if you focused on them exclusively. Muawiyah and Abdul Malik earned their fame by building and rebuilding their clan's power from the ground up, respectively, each prevailing through his own time's fitna, or civil war. Although Hisham started from a position of power, he will prove to be by far the most tested caliph, faced with an onslaught of challenges that would have crippled or crushed the caliphate if a lesser man were in charge. I'm not trying to get ahead of myself but I want to prepare you for some very chaotic, action-packed years ahead for the Ummah. There will be a few new names, yes, and sometimes they'll even be removed from power, retired, then reassigned to fight new enemies of the Ummah. Speaking of enemies, Hisham's reign will have to stand up to all sorts of armies, Frankish, Berber, Byzantine, Khazar, Turkish, Sindhi, and even Arab. Although Hisham will do an admirable job, all this pandemonium will have a deep impact on the Caliphate, making it vital to understand his reign correctly. But before we can tell Hisham's story, it's important for us to look back at the lesser-known caliphs who came after Abdul Malik to try and chart the significant developments that the Ummah had underwent. This can't be achieved by reflecting on the narrations we find in their reigns alone, as those are just too few and disorganized for any cohesive points to emerge from scrutinizing them. It's only after the problems facing the caliphate became clear and menacing that we can determine which threads are the ones worth tracing back. Now that Yazid II's reign is over, we know that the biggest challenges facing his successor was the financial state of the caliphate and its growing tribal divide. It is these two themes that we must now follow through the reigns of Al-Walid, Sulaiman, Omar, and Yazid to see when things took a turn for the worse and how. Our ultimate purpose is not to apportion blame, however, rather it is to size up the challenge that now lay ahead of the Ummah's next leader, something worth keeping in mind. Abdul Malik isn't part of this roundup, because he's the great patriarchal figure who put Humpty Dumpty back together again, then put him on steroids. His masterful administration built a rich and powerful caliphate that he then passed on to his son Wadid. Wadid had so much money that he ran out of ideas for what to do with it. He commissioned magnificent buildings and expanded the Syrian social safety net, and still had lots of wealth to spare. 
This was largely thanks to the booty from the many conquests led by the capable commanders his vice-regent of the East and Hajjaj had appointed. While al-Walid did not empower either side of the tribal divide, his closeness to al-Hajjaj was deeply problematic, especially as the latter grew more tyrannical the longer he stayed in power. You could argue that by choosing not to remove al-Hajjaj, al-Walid was just following his father's advice, but I think it showed a lack of initiative on his part. In any case, it's clear that the caliphate's tribal and financial problems did not begin during his time in charge. His brother Suleiman is a much better candidate for that dubious honor. Suleiman the gluttonous empowered his Qahtani loyalists and spent vast sums living large and, far more ruinously, invading Constantinople. Worst of all, he seems to have taken absolutely no interest in actual administration, and so if money problems had indeed begun under his watch, as I strongly suspect, he and his loyalists were unlikely to have noticed. The one good thing that came out of Suleiman's bias towards the Qahtanis was their prevailing upon him to name his cousin Omar as his successor. Now, they may have only done so in order to avoid the rise of Yazid II, but the pious Omar was a breath of fresh air for the Ummah, and he is remembered as an exceptional member of his clan. Omar's policies are usually explained in terms of his deep and sincere religious belief, a subject which dominates narrations about him. He is often blamed for bankrupting the Ummah, by exempting converts from taxation. I find this sort of commentary both unfair and lazy. Omar's changes represented a whole new vision for the Ummah. Sure, there was less tax revenue, but he essentially decentralized the treasury by not forcing governors to forward their taxes to Damascus, allowing them to reinvest it in their own lands instead. Syria was less prosperous during his reign, as money no longer flowed into the caliph's main province, and the impression of poverty is probably amplified by the caliph's own austere lifestyle. There are hints that the Ummah was already having some financial troubles during Omar's reign, like a narration in which the caliph asks his wife to donate her jewelry to the treasury, and one where he contemplates ripping the gold and gems adorning the mosques built by his predecessors. There's another one where a governor writes asking him for resources to build up his domain, and the caliph replies advising him to fortify it with virtue and pave it with good deeds or something. As with most narrations about Omar, these quickly morph into admiration for the caliph's godliness, and so it's hard to be sure. If that was the case, then Omar's changes, far from being oblivious of the ummah's financial state, may have actually been meant to address it. After all, spending money where it was taxed meant that every province would get a budget proportionate to its population, and allowing Mawadi to serve in the armies probably made it cheaper to control those distant lands, both because they rebelled less often and their defenders were local. Ultimately, it's difficult to tell if Omar's policies saved the Ummah money. All I'm saying is that it's not at all clear that they were unconcerned with the health of the treasury. It is more than likely that he would have found it irreligious to not look after the Ummah's treasury. The caliph justified his own asceticism on the grounds that he was living off of the people's money. Omar's reign suffered from very little tribal bias or friction. He resented both al-Hajjaj and his solidly Qahtani successor al-Muhallab for their brutality, and he did not hesitate to punish anyone who displayed a similar disregard for life. What's impressive is how effectively his approach froze that whole dynamic, which almost seemed to be taking on a life of its own under the partisan Suleiman. Maybe it would have simply melted away in a few decades of enlightened rule, but that was not to be.
and Omar's successor Yazid was just as solidly prejudiced as Suleiman, except towards the Adnanis. Almost everyone he empowered was a leading figure in that camp of the tribal divide, and their brutality towards the Muhallabs in the east led to great resentment from that part of the caliphate. The real problem, however, was the intersection of that tribal dynamic with the financial strain experienced under Yazid II. He had a more classical vision of the caliphate, and so he wanted his governors to forward their revenues to Damascus once again. This led to the reintroduction of taxes for non-Arab Muslims, the Mawadi, and their expulsion from the Ummah's armies. I came across some telling narrations which complained that, quote, the Umayyads sacrificed their piety when they massacred the Hashemites and their generosity when they massacred the sons of Muhallab. It's this new perception that the post-Muhallab caliphate was some faraway power hell-bent on taxing them dry that represented the biggest challenge to Umayyad authority in the East from then on. So, now that we're done with our regal roundup and how things progressed, we have a better idea of the challenges which lay ahead of our next caliph. There's no point in teasing you about his identity, as the title already gave it away. But let me tell you more about who exactly this Hisham bin Abdul Malik was and how he came to lead the caliphate. Hisham was a little younger than Yazid, and so he too had never experienced a time when his clan was not ascendant. Little is known about him before he became caliph, and there's no reason to assume that his was any different from Yazid's sheltered upbringing. He's only mentioned three times before he becomes caliph, as a commander in one of Maslama's raids on Byzantine lands during Al-Walid's time, and as one of the Umayyads who protested when Omar II was named as caliph. Finally, when Yazid appointed Maslama as governor of Iraq and the east, he gave one of the provinces that had been under his charge, Jazira, or Mesopotamia, to Hisham to govern. You may think that as the last eligible son of Abdul Medik, Hisham's succession was a straightforward affair, but there was a little wrinkle that had to be smoothed out first. It probably won't surprise you to learn that Yazid, like every Umayyad before him, wanted his son to be his successor. He might have had his way if he had lived longer, but the boy was still a teenager when the caliph passed away at the young age of 34, so it was not to be. We're told he put out feelers to see whether his family was cool with it, but that Maslama objected that his son Walid was still way too young, which some sources say was the real reason Yazid removed Maslama from his powerful position over Iraq and the East. Ali Aqubi tells it differently. He reports that the caliph sent Khalid al-Qasri to Hisham with a special offer. If he forfeit his claim to succession, he could remain governor of Jazeera in perpetuity. You may remember Khalid as the emissary the caliph had previously sent to negotiate with Yazid ibn al-Muhallab earlier in his reign, so it seems like the caliph used him for these sorts of missions. I'm not sure if Khalid proved to be the worst man for the job or the best. You can be the judge of that yourself a couple episodes down the line. We're told that after Hisham hastily accepted the caliph's offer, Khalid told him he could do better, and that he'd help him become caliph if he promised to keep the matter between the two of them. Hisham was extremely grateful and readily complied once again. Khalid then went back to the caliph and reported that if Hisham were denied his rightful place as next in line, his fury would destroy the entire caliphate. Successfully spooked by Khalid's vivid warnings, the caliph decided to keep Hisham as his successor and name his son Walid as second in line. Yazid passed away in late January of 724, probably of a plague considering his young age, though many sources like to say he died of grief over the loss of his beloved concubine Hababa.
Hisham was somewhere called Zaytuna, and found out when a royal messenger greeted him as caliph and presented him with the prophet's seal and scepter. I only mention these details because it's nice to see the Arabs finally getting succession down and passing power on so smoothly. To best appreciate Hisham's reign, we need to proceed slowly, really taking our time to appreciate the different themes involved. Since we're already halfway through today's episode, I want to take this opportunity to delve deeper into what will turn out to be the Caliphate's most pivotal region. Our primary sources contain many narrations about Khurasan during Hisham's reign, but before getting into any of it, I want to flesh out its recent past with the supplemental material I've been using for this episode. It must be clear by now that the governor of Iraq and the East was perhaps the most important position in the entire Caliphate. Ever since the dynasty's earliest days, way back during the time of Muawiyah, it was Ziyad bin Abi Sufyan who secured Iraq in the east for the Umayyad and enabled his reign's prosperity. Iraq was especially important early on. Things fell apart when the sons of the Studuhat couldn't handle its volatile cities as masterfully, and it wasn't until Mus'ab ibn Zubayr's defeat in Iraq that Abdul Malik felt secure that he had triumphed in the second fitna. His governor of the east, Al-Hajjaj, dominated our narrative throughout the reign of both Abdul Malik and his son Walid, mainly with headlines about how he brutalized the Iraqis and snuffed out their rebellions. By the time he passed away, Iraq had been thoroughly pacified, and the province held little financial, political, or military power. Al-Hajjaj, on the other hand, remained politically relevant even after his own death, and the caliphs who came afterwards either sought to punish his loyalists or return them to power and punish their punishers. We covered the short reigns of Suleiman, Omar II, and Yazid II rapidly as a reflection of how badly they were documented in our primary sources. But again, to appreciate the impact of Hisham's changes, it's important to get back into this history armed with a few more details from outside the material we usually work with. So Iraq sucked under al-Hajjaj, but the East grew to its largest extent ever thanks to the men he put in charge of conquering it. His most successful commander, Qutayba, basically gobbled up all the east. He took all of Khwarezm, Samarkand, Sogdia, Transoxiana, and the Fergana Valley. These impressive feats were achieved through his own legendary prowess and some new policies he introduced, like entering into truces with local nobility more often and using thousands of local troops in his armies. Militarily speaking, these changes were highly effective but they also allowed the eastern nobility to hold on to some level of influence over their people, who themselves became more battle-hardened as they fought for the caliphate. Now these forces could never have posed a threat to a united and powerful caliphate, but since Sulaiman, Omar, and Yazid came after one another in quick succession, each with his own radically different version of what the caliphate should look like, unity in the east was severely undermined, especially due to the whiplash the Umayyads generated after Yazid reversed Omar's enlightened policies of embracing non-Arab Muslims as equals. But here we are rushing through it again. Let's slow down and see how things fell apart frame by frame. It wasn't long after Qutayba's removal that the Arabs suffered their first notable defeat in the east, either late in Suleiman's reign or early in Omar's. It came at the hands of a people known as the Turkish, who may have been vassals of the Chinese at this point. See, one of the many peoples conquered by Qutayba were the Yabhus of Tukharistan. These were a Turkic tribal confederation who resided in the Fergana Valley 
and it's not entirely clear how this Chinese connection of theirs came about. Some say that after the Arabs had conquered the Chinese city of Kashgar, they and their Turkish allies went after some military fortifications the Tang dynasty had set up a century ago in the area, which is when they properly caught the eye of the Chinese. Others say that the Yabrus either appealed to the Turkish for help or were distant cousins of the Turkish themselves. Part of the confusion is because the Tang had defeated the western Turkic Kaganate a hundred years back, splitting its people and creating a bunch of different puppet confederations. But ultimately, an Umayyad army was defeated, a few towns were liberated or besieged, and the Caliphate even had to pay the Turkish some ransom for the release of a dozen or so captives. Nothing too major, but these victories reinforced the relationship between the Turkish and the Chinese, and the Turkish made it their mission to push the Arabs out of first the Fergana Valley, then Tukharistan, then all Transoxiana. This reversal must have made the local princes of the east take note, and maybe if the Arabs had continued to treat them as savagely as they had under al-Hajjaj, they would have tried to make common cause with the Turkish. Things were changing, though, and Suleiman's rule was kind of a mixed bag. It must have been nice for them to see the Arabs murder Qutayba one day, but they also lost some of their newly acquired influence when their men were barred from participating in Arab armies, and al-Muhallab was pretty brutal himself, especially in areas emboldened by the Turkish offensive. Omar's reign was even more agreeable to the local rulers of the east. He punished the Muhallabs for their cruelty, his invitation to join the Ummah was genuine and entailed lower taxation, and perhaps most importantly, he clearly seemed more interested in justice than tribute. The one glaring downside of Omar's reign from their point of view was that it encouraged their subjects to convert, which in turn meant that these local rulers would lose control over them. Many an Arab governor did not want these foreigners to convert either, as that just lowered their overall tax revenue. And so, during Omar's reign and afterwards, we find examples of the two ruling classes, the local Arab administrators and the local nobility, conspiring to prevent the spread of Islam while embracing it themselves. Still, no loud discontent from the East is noted during Omar's time in charge, and it is usually portrayed as having been celebrated there for its egalitarian policies. But the men Omar empowered did nothing to stand against the Turkish, who were now united behind a leader named Suluk, their Khagan, or Khan of Khans. Then, when Yazid came to power, there was that drama with the Muhallabs which distracted the Arabs for a couple years, and with the exception of the fortified city of Samarkand, they basically lost control of all Transoxiana around then. There is a celebrated victory for the Arabs towards the end of this period in which they successfully, at great cost and against all odds, managed to break a siege of one of their forts and evacuate its inhabitants before the Turkish returned. So that kind of shows you the power balance at the time. Yazid's governors weren't all total disasters. Omar ibn Hubayra first appointed a guy who I told you was removed for being too brutal. That may not have been true. Apparently, other sources all agree that he was pretty ineffectual and had been removed because he tried going over Ibn Hubayra's head a couple times by writing to the caliph directly. He was replaced by a Sa'id al-Harashi, who, using the fortified Samarkand as his base, managed to crush a Sogdian rebellion and retake most of Transoxiana, pretty much everything other than the Firghana Valley in the Far East. This didn't come cheap, though, and he was replaced for not sending enough money back to broke Damascus. But don't forget about him entirely, as he'll show up later during Hisham's time in charge. 
But anyway, after him came a guy called Muslim who made plans to go retake Fargana, and just after he ordered his armies to muster for the invasion, he found out that Hisham had come to power. We're finally caught up, and we can now appreciate just how volatile everything was when Hisham became caliph. For the powerful position of governor of Iraq in the east, he chose Khalid al-Qasri, and those who believe Yaqubi's account about Khalid's role in Hisham's succession view the appointment as a reward to the man, plain and simple. Others see a more calculated decision. Despite Khalid's previous closeness to al-Hajjaj, he was from a tribe so small that it was one of the few remaining ones who could honestly be described as neutral in the Ummah's tribal feud. This tribal perspective is important because of how sensitive the issue had become in the East, where it had been deeply exacerbated by the repeated switching of state allegiance from one side of the feud to the other. So when the Arabs in the East heard about Yazid's death and Hisham's succession, the Qahtanis expected one of their own to come to power, and they refused to obey the governor's call to arms. It wasn't until another letter came from the new governor of Iraq, telling Muslim to go ahead with his invasion, that they complied with Muslim's orders. While the incident didn't lead to tribal warfare, the Qahtanis did have to be coerced by Adnani army, but the fighting which ensued didn't get too bloody. Some sources claim that up to 4,000 Qahtanis of Azd withdrew from the army altogether, which was a first for the caliphate if we discount Karajites and other rebels. For such a large number to abandon their duty to the Ummah was unprecedented, and it really shows the extent to which the tribal feud had eroded Arab power. The invasion led by Muslim marked the worst loss for the caliphate in the east yet, and it's remembered by the dire moniker, the Day of Thirst. We don't know how many troops he had when he went and attacked the Fergana Valley, but it wasn't too long before the Arabs heard that Suluk was leading a much larger force to destroy them. They would make easy targets in the open, and so Muslim and his forces beat a hasty retreat, knowing that they wouldn't be safe until they crossed the river out of the valley. The Arabs were harassed by the Turkish for eight days until they at last reached the river, only to find it blocked by armies raised by local princes who had finally taken a stand against the caliphate. The Arabs suffered heavy casualties breaking out of the siege, and the few who survived made their way back to Samarkand, the Ummah's last defensible city in the province. It wasn't long before the new governor of the east, Khalid, put his brother Assad in charge of Khurasan. To keep the tribal perspective going, Khalid was resented by the Adnanis for having replaced their man Ibn Hubayra, and the Qahtanis would never see him as one of their own, even though his administration included more of them than their rivals. Assad had more luck in Khurasan, but the partisan kind of luck, where the Qahtanis embraced him and it pissed off the Adnanis. His appointment ended up worsening the tribal tensions there, and a few years later the caliph received so many Adnani complaints that he ordered Khalid to replace his brother with someone less problematic. We'll cover this history in more detail next time, but reports like these present compelling evidence that Hisham viewed the tribal conflict as something to be managed and minimized, unlike the two half-brothers who came before him. It's this theme of saving the Ummah from problems ignored or exacerbated by his predecessors which you'll find repeated most often through Hisham's reign. We won't cover any more of it today, but honestly, I would do this deep dive for every part of the caliphate if we had the material for it. I suppose we should be grateful that we know as much as we do about Khurasan, as like I've hinted before, it will play an essential role in coming events.
Although we don't have as much background history about any of these other regions, the broad outline will be familiar. Years of mismanagement and infighting had lost the caliphate its control over most of its distant armies, and local populations tried to capitalize on that disorder. Hisham really had his work cut out for him, as this pattern repeated itself all over the fragile caliphate he inherited. Join me next time to find out more about all he had to go through to earn his place in history, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.